0: Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about four thousand of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the before the Philistines let us bring the Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh? so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines camp. When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of strong Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of god when the men entered the town and told what had happened the whole town set up a cry i heard the outcry and asked what is the meaning of this uproar the man hurried over to eli who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see he told eli i have just come from the battle line i fled from it this very day Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son, but she did not respond. Or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, "The glory has departed from Israel, because of the capture of the Ark of God and the death of and her husband." She said, "Departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured."
1: Really strange things happen in times of war. You can never actually predict the outcome of any battle. Did you know that the British Army was once defeated by a swarm of bees? So it was November the 5th, 1914, this is World War I, and the British Army was attacking a town called Tanga in East Africa. Now, here's the scene. The Poms had 8,000 soldiers and Tanga was defended by 800 Askari tribesmen with 30 German officers. So that's 10 to 1 superiority. Of course, it was no contest. It was never going to be a contest until the Brits made their final push into town. Because you see, on the edge of Tanga, the whole town was, and these trees were filled with these huge hives of African bees. Now, the thing about African bees is they're enormous. They're about twice the size of a normal honeybee, and they are super aggressive. They're still called sometimes. They're still called killer bees. And because their hives had been shot to bits, the bees went absolutely berserk. But for some reason, they only attacked the palms. I think we can work out why. They're the palms, right? And they stung, and they stung. One British uh, signalman was stung 300 times, and he actually won the military cross because he kept sending his signals despite being stung time and time again. And there was nothing the Brits could do. They just dropped their rifles and they ran, they bolted. And their commander, a guy named General Aitken, was still back on board ship when he saw hundreds of his soldiers bolting out onto the beach, waving their arms over their heads like madmen and plunging into the ocean. And he turned to his aide and he said, my God! What devilish feat have the Germans been up to? And it wasn't the Germans at all. It was a bunch of bees. Crazy, right? But if you think that's crazy, today we're going to see an entire nation get defeated with no swords, not even stings. They get defeated by a box. Today is, frankly, one of the most amazing stories in the whole Bible. And it starts with the passage that we just read. Israel go up to fight against their old foe, the Philistines. And in verse 2, they get defeated and 4,000 men lose their lives. Which is a tragedy, isn't it? What should they have done in that moment? Well, remember last week, Hannah is the benchmark in the book of Samuel. We read Hannah's song and we saw that Hannah is the one that everyone is measured against. What did Hannah do? She prayed, didn't she? She poured out her heart to God. And so in this moment of national tragedy, Israel should have prayed. They should have asked God to show them why they'd lost, what sin they'd committed. Ask God what should they do next. That would be the humble thing to do, wouldn't it? But instead, Israel decided to try and force God's arm. So look in verse 3. They say, "'Let us bring out the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that He may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies.'" Now, the ark was a box that sat in the very heart of the temple. It had the Ten Commandments in it. On top of it, it had these two statues of cherubim, or they're kind of like angel-like creatures. And between those two cherubim, God was enthroned. The presence of God but His presence was in the temple in between these two cherubim on the ark. And so you know what Israel's thinking at this point, don't you? They're saying, if we take the ark into battle, God is going to have to go with us. And God is going to have to fight for us. Otherwise, God will be defeated by the Philistines. God will end, end up being captured. There's no way God's going to let that happen. He's got no choice, so let's go grab the ark and we'll take it into battle. Israel are trying to twist God's arm into doing what they want. That is, they're nothing like Hannah at this point, are they? They're not humbly obeying God, humbly looking to serve God and trust Him. They're trying to bully God. And this week I've been trying to think of the times when we might do this, when I might have done this. And to be honest, I couldn't actually think of very many. I think maybe when I was quite a young christian i might have prayed to god god if you don't do this and answer might be a christian anymore i can maybe think of times i've done that and sometimes when we talk to people who aren't christians and will explain things that they don't like necessarily about christianity they'll go well in that case i'm not going to be a christian as if me not following god is going to hurt him in some way but i couldn't think of many ways to force god into doing something but i can think of an attitude where i am just like the israelites here And that is, I tend to think that God is here for me instead of me being here for God. Because that's really how Israel thought about this situation, wasn't it? God is there to help them fight their battles, to help them be glorious, to help them be the great victorious nation of Israel. God is there to do what they want. He's their servant. And that is an attitude that I often have. I think it's an attitude that lots of us have. Especially in Christian circles, there's this way of thinking about life that we kind of get from the rest of the world that says, I want to have the very best life that I can. I want to follow my dreams. I want to follow my heart. I want my life to be a great adventure. And God's job, if I become a Christian, is to help me do that. God's job is to help me fulfill my dreams and... If I let God into my life, He's going to make my life better. And so for a lot of Christians, life's focusing on all of the same things that the rest of the world focuses on. We focus on travel. The fact is, God won't have His arm twisted by human beings because He is not our servant. We're His. God's job is not to make my life better. My job is to glorify Him, to love Him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. My job is to take up my cross and follow Jesus. My job is to lose my life for the gospel. My job is to live for Christ. All the different ways that the Bible says it. It's not about us, is it? It's about God. Now, of course, the greatest irony is that's actually the happiest way to live, isn't it? Serving God is actually going to make me happier than following my own heart ever will, because God loves me. And so I'll never be worse off by following God. But the first big lesson Israel have to learn, and they learn it incredibly painfully in this passage, is God is not here for us. We are here to glorify Him. It's an incredibly painful lesson, isn't it? It occurred to me at some point this week, that those 30,000 men who died represent 30,000 real families, 30,000 people who are at the heart of another family. This is a, a national tragedy. But an even greater national tragedy is that the ark is captured and it's taken off to Ashdod, which is one of the Philistine cities. And Eli and Hophni and Phineas all die in one day, just as God said they would last week. And the whole episode kind of just gets summed up. It gets captured by this poor little boy, Ichabod. Poor baby Ichabod gets saddled with a name that means no glory. The word kabod is the the Hebrew word for glory, and it's it. It's no glory. Because God has sent his glory out of Israel. The ark is gone. But of course, it does raise a question, doesn't it? god has now technically been shamed i mean he's taught israel a lesson but now god has been captured by the philistines and that does seem to be a deeply shameful thing for the true god to let happen is god going to allow himself to continue to be shamed well let's have our second reading you're going to
0: see it on the screen After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon, nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, The Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering shall we send to him? They replied, Five gold shumas and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have carved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the Ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the Ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, its chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and going all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left, the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza, Eshcolon, Gath and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of kiriath Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath Jearim came and took up the Ark of the Lord, put it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath Jearim a long time, twenty years in all.
1: That's one of my favourite parts of the whole Bible. It's such an extraordinary story. What we see is the ratings of the lost ark. And we're actually meant to laugh at the story. The Bible doesn't often have moments of humor, but this is one of them. So the Philistines carry Yahweh's Ark off. They carry God off as their captive. And they put Yahweh's Ark in the temple of Dagon. And it's a trophy. It's meant to show how great and glorious and victorious their God Dagon is. But then the next morning they walk in and and here's Dagon flat on his face in front of Yahweh's ark. And they have to pick up their mighty victorious God and and they have to stand him on his feet again. And then the next morning they walk in and there he is again, flat on his face before God's ark, except this time his head and his hands have fallen off. Dagon becomes Humpty Dumpty. And all the king's horses and all the king's men have to put this great God Dagon back together again. And we're meant to find it funny. We're meant to laugh at Dagon, this impotent idol. Now, of course, we find it hard to laugh, don't we? We find it just a little bit awkward because, for us, we don't laugh at other cultures. Our world wants all of the religions to get along and to respect each other, and you never laugh or poke fun at another religion. And look, that's basically because none of the religions are true. All the religions are made up, so they're all pretty harmless, basically. It doesn't matter which one you follow. Just as long as the religions get on with each other, just as long as they get along and don't tease each other too much, it doesn't really matter which one. But the thing is, 1 Samuel 5 shows us, Yahweh isn't a made-up God. He's the real God. Remember what Hannah sung last week? He's the real God and He set the earth on its foundations. And other religions are not just harmless expressions of culture. No, other religions destroy people with demonic lies. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the sacrifices of pagans are actually offered to demons. In other words, false religions aren't just harmless expressions of culture, even though the god Dagon doesn't actually exist. No, behind them is the demonic work of Satan. They hold people in spiritual captivity and trap them in lies. And so even though it does actually go against our culture, we have to say Dagon was a dem god. Allah does not exist. The gods of the Hindus do not exist. And it might sound disrespectful. It might sound culturally blind. But this is what our God, the true God, teaches. This is just set contending for the truth that's set forward in the Bible. Yahweh defeats the false god of the Philistines. But then after that, Yahweh begins to defeat the entire Philistine nation. Yahweh goes on this rampage through the five great cities of Philistia. People in Ashdod get tumors all over their bodies. And so they say, well, can they send it off to Gath? And then the same thing happens to them and so they send the ark to Ekron and it's kind of like a hot potato. Everyone who touches the ark ends up being burnt and some of the people in Ekron actually die and so they get rid of the ark too and finally they do something that the Israelites never did. They worship God and treat His ark properly and they offer sacrifices and they send it back and all of the leaders are following behind the ark of God as they send it back to Israel. And you can almost hear the words of Hannah's song, can't you? Remember Hannah's song from last week? It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Whether it's Israel who try and force God's hand, or the false god Dagon, or the five cities of Philistia, What we're seeing here is God showing His glory. And in fact, the author of Hebrews, he does something that, he uses some really cool and ironic language to show this, that our translations never really quite pick up. Just have a look in chapter 5, verse 6 for a minute. Chapter 5, verse 6, it says, "...the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors." When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, "The ark of the God of Israel mustn't stay here with us, because His hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God." See, twice there it says God's hand was heavy on the Philistines, and the same word gets used in chapter five, verse eleven as well. It talks about God's hand being heavy. What's cool and ironic is the word "heavy" is actually the same word as the word "glory" in in their language. Glory is heaviness. Weight and glory, same idea. Remember what the name Ichabod meant at the end of chapter 4? Ichabod meant no glory. The glory had parted from Israel. Ichabod was called that because there was no glory left in Israel. It may have been gone from Israel, but God was still glorious. God was still heavy. And God showed His heaviness, His glory by defeating the, the Philistines. He has no weapons. He has no swords. He has no spears. But he's doing what the entire army of Israel couldn't do. He's defeating the Philistines with just a box about that big. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And again, it's a great lesson for us, isn't it? It's the lesson that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us for Christianity to survive. God doesn't need Hunter Bible Church to reach Newy and Lake Mac. God doesn't need our structures. God doesn't need our life series. God doesn't need our professionalism. Hunter Bible Church could disappear today, but the kingdom would still go on. Our God chooses to use us in His kindness But we just have to keep remembering that He doesn't actually need us. When I first became a Christian, there was this terrible song that we all used to sing. If you're of a particular age, you might even remember it. The song went, Christ has no hands but our hands to do His work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in the way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how He died. He has no help but our help to bring them to His. What if our hands are busy with other work than his, what if our feet are walking, where sins illumine is? What if our tongue is speaking of things his lips would spurn? How can we hope to help him or welcome his return? What a load of garbage. What a terrible song! Dagon's the God with no hands. Yahweh, not Jesus. Yahweh does not need our hands. He got along just fine for millennia without Hunter Bible Church, and he will again. He defeated the Philistines with just a box for crying out loud. And so if God wanted to save Newcastle and Lake Mac without us, he could. He doesn't need our voices. He doesn't need our structures. He doesn't need our efforts. God could preach the gospel using angels encircling the earth if he wanted to. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14, that's exactly what he does. He sends an angel around the earth, to broadcast the eternal gospel. The lovely thing is God does give us the privilege of working with Him. The wonderful thing is God allows us to work as His fellow workers, working side by side with Him in growing the kingdom. But the thing is, even our slackness, even our sinfulness, even our ineptitude, even though our hands and minds are often well and truly distracted, God still grows His kingdom. One Samuel 5 is just wonderful for putting us in our place, isn't it? God does not need us to fight His battles. And in chapter 7, when Israel finally learned that, things begin to go right for them. We're going to read chapter 7 now.
0: Then all the people of Israel turned. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and, the, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as a leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to our God for us. That he may rescue us from the hand of the philistines then samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the lord he cried out to the lord on israel's behalf and the lord answered him while samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering the philistines drew near to engage israel but that day the lord thundered with loud thunder against the philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he ordered Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord.
1: So, chapter 7 really is a kind of bookend with chapter 4, isn't it? Um, even the way the two chapters are set out is, is kind of there to show us that they're bookends. So, There's similar language, the language of being struck down, chapter 7. Both chapters have this kind of desperate prayer for God to save. Both chapters have the idea of the Philistines hearing what's going on in Israel's camp. Both chapters end with something being named. So chapter 4 ended with Ichabod being named, the glory has departed. Chapter 7 ends with Ebenezer being named, the Lord has helped. That is, the author wants us to compare chapter 4 with chapter 7 and to, to ask what's different. And what's different really is Israel's attitude, isn't it? In chapter 4, they try to twist God's arm. In chapter 7, they repent. They put aside their idols. They serve Yahweh. The lesson's really clear, isn't it? God won't have His arm twisted. God's not going to be our puppet. He's God. He's the one who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. And so there's a really clear lesson to be learned there. And yet, when you think about it, if that's all we took away from 1 Samuel 4-7, to 7, we would just end up with a morality tale, wouldn't we? Morality tales are stories that are designed to teach you morals. They're designed to make you a better person. But Christianity is not about making us better people, is it? Christianity is about making us saved people, and it's fundamentally more about God and Jesus than it ever is about us. So as we go back and look at chapter 7 more closely, what we notice is the difference is not Israel's attitude. The difference is Samuel. Samuel's been missing all the way through this story, hasn't he? I mean, he's meant to be the major character of the book. He's what chapters 1 to 3 were all about, remember. But in all this mess of chapters 4 to 6, Samuel's gone missing. Samuel strides back onto the stage, and Samuel really dominates, doesn't he? So look in verse 3, Samuel preaches to Israel, and he says, "'If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts,' Then rid yourself of your foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only and He'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel, who calls Israel back to God, and in verse 4, they obey Him and they put away their Baals their and their Ashtoreths. Then in chapter 5, Samuel says, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I'll intercede with the Lord for you. So Samuel's not just the preacher. He's the one who prays for them as well, like a priest. In verse 6, Samuel is called Israel's leader. The word there is the word judge, just like all the great judges in the book of Judges, Gideon and Samuel and Ehud and Barak. And then in verse 8, during the battle, Samuel's the one who cries out to the Lord so that Israel can have victory. And then in verse 9, he offers sacrifices for Israel. And then in verse 12, he sets up the stone of Ebenezer. And look how the chapter actually finishes in verse 15. Look in verse 15. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging all Israel in those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, for Israel and he built an altar there to the Lord. We end with the description of Samuel leading Israel because the difference between Israel in chapter the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7 is not Israel It's Samuel. And we're actually getting a pointer forward to Jesus here, aren't we? Christianity is not a religion of morality. It's not about turning me into a more humble, better version of myself. Christianity is a religion about a saviour. Just like last week, we're not meant to walk away from this part of the Bible with a moral lesson tucked under our belt. We're meant to walk away with a picture of what Jesus, our Saviour, would be like. That is, the difference between my old life and now is not me, is it? The difference between me and the person before I became a Christian, it's not about my moral improvement, is it? It's not a story of getting better. It's a story of getting saved. It's a story of what Jesus has done in my life. Jesus is the one who taught me right. Jesus is the one who showed me truth from lies. Jesus is the one who opened my eyes by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who, like Samuel, is the one who prays for me and prays for me still. Jesus is the one who defeats Satan for me. Jesus is the one who died for me and rescued me. And Jesus is the one who rules my life now. Without him, I would still be blind and lost and foolish. You see, Christians are not good people who have finally learned to be humble. No, saved people who have met the true Samuel, Jesus. And what this passage does for us is cast a shadow into the future in the shape of Jesus. And what we're meant to do from this is love Jesus all the more. Praise Jesus all the more. Because you know what we're going to see next week? is like everyone else, Samuel ends up stuffing things up. We're going to see that he's not the man they hoped. He's not the man we would have hoped. But Jesus is. Jesus, I'd find and arrogant and foolish and defeated and captive to lives with jesus i'm free let's pray our heavenly father we praise you that this passage gives us such a clear picture of you and also such a wonderful promise of jesus we praise you that you are the god who can't be manipulated and bullied and bossed around we praise you that we are here for you you're not here for us but we also praise you that every time we serve you every time we obey you you bless us that our lives are better in your service that when we give up our life we find it when we take up our cross and obediently follow jesus we find life and we pray that you would help us to see that we can't use you and help us to fight that, to resist that spirit in us that constantly wants to see you as our servant. But we also praise you for this promise of Jesus to come. We thank you that the difference between chapters 4 and 7 is not moral improvement, but the Saviour who sent. We thank you for Samuel's teacher session, for his leading. And we praise you for jesus or more thank you that you're not just in the business of making us better people you're in the business of saving us through jesus thank you that jesus opened our eyes because before him we were blind and lost thank you that jesus prays for us still thank you that jesus shows us right from wrong thank you that jesus is the difference between now and before And we pray that we will praise him all the more because of it. Amen.